real love when people can make mistakes and not be remembered for their flaws, but be remembered for who they are and how they serve the Lord. And I'm grateful for these musicians whom God has given us to help us love Him more. Let's pray. Father, we love You. Thank You for loving us. The way You've directed us to Yourself today has been marvelous already. Father, I confess as I come to this passage of Scripture, which is as well known as any other passage in the Bible, that I'm inadequate. I'm flawed, Father, when it comes to interpreting this passage. But I trust Your Spirit to take the medium of my preparation in my life and to communicate the truth He has for this church today. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. My roots are sunk deeply in the soil of West Tennessee. My Papa Woods was a sharecropper. My Papa Johnson was a politician in Henderson County. And it seemed like I spent an interminably large amount of my time traveling from my home in Memphis to Lexington and surrounding territory. I became intimately acquainted with all the communities that we would travel through on our way. There was Arlington, there was Mason, there was Stanton, and there was Brownsville. Oh, blessed Brownsville, that was the midway point. My cousin David and I would always heave a great sigh of relief when we got to Brownsville because we knew that we were halfway there, an hour and a half away from our destination, halfway there. And occasionally we would take an alternate route and it would take us through Somerville and Bolivar, Henderson and Jack's Creek. But to tell you the truth, it always seems so long. Three hours is a long time for a child, if not for an adult. Then something wonderful happened. In the early 1960s, Interstate 40 opened up. This superhighway reduced our trip time almost in half. It was, it was the same amount of distance, but it cut it almost in half. There was no more slowing down for every little wide spot in the road. There was no more lining up behind many, many cars who were lined up behind some slow-moving tractor on the highway. That superhighway, once we had gotten used to it, spoiled us to any other way of getting from Memphis to Lexington and back. Now, the Corinthians were caught up in traveling an inferior highway in order to make sense out of life. They were under the misconception that if they exercised their spiritual gifts correctly, then they would have meaning in their lives. And as you will recall, as we've studied 1 Corinthians 12, some of them felt like they were superior to the rest because they had the more important gifts, or at least they thought they did. And then there was a larger number in the church at Corinth who thought they were inferior because they didn't have these more important gifts. And it seemed like there was a group who had the gift of tongues, and this group felt like that supernatural gift from God was the summum bonum of the Christian gifts. It was the gift which showed that they were specially favored and blessed of God, that they were super spiritual in their relationship to God. But Paul 
in his inimitable fashion, had a way of correcting that misconception, didn't he? He showed them a super highway to meaningful living. And it changed their lives, just like it can change your life and mine. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13 again. And as A.T. Robertson says, those who were making the divisions of the chapters in our Bible made a mistake. They should have included the last part of the last verse of chapter 12 with chapter 13. So I want to begin by reading the last sentence in verse 31 of chapter 12 and read through verse 3 of chapter 13 for our text today. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. I think it's important that I pause to define the love about which the apostle speaks. He says, I'm showing you a most excellent way. The word, if it were translated into English to describe this excellent way, would be hyperbole. You know what hyperbole is? It's the exaggerated way. The way which Paul is about to expound to meaningful living and the way which God has given us to have full living, living to the max, is a life of love. It's life par excellence. It's life beyond all comparison. This love is not what we normally associate with romantic love or sexual love, nor is it the kind of love that we often equate with sentimentality, the kind of feeling we get when we think about our country and we see someone from our country standing and receiving a gold medal at the Olympics and we hear the national anthem. It's not the misty-eyedness that accompanies thinking about our friends. It's a different kind of love. I like John Stott's definition of the New Testament love. It is a new word for a new idea, as you will see. Dr. Stott defines love from the Bible's point of view this way. Love is the sacrifice of self in the service of others, especially undeserving others. Now, there's no virtue in my loving someone who loves me. Jesus said that. Are you aware of that fact? In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, what, is, what good is it if you love someone back who's already loved you? Real love, Jesus says, is loving our enemies or loving those who aren't like us. Where our love is put to the test is when we come up against a situation where someone literally hates us and has aligned herself or himself against us. That's where real love comes into play. Real love comes into play when we are called to love someone who is of a different race than we or who is of a different political party than we or from a different part of the country than we or from a different nation than we. That's when real love is put to the test. For you see, real love loves those who are not exactly like it. Now, that makes what I'm about to say make sense. God is the origin of this sort of love. The simplest definition of God in the Bible is God is love. God who is wholly other. God who is so different from us 
Here we are in our sinfulness. Here God is in His holiness. And in His great love, He reaches down in the person of Jesus Christ and He loves us unconditionally. He embraces us with His love. This kind of love is best seen on a hill called Golgotha. It's best seen on a bloody cross where Jesus Christ stretched out His hand and I wish I knew who came up with this saying. It's such a beautiful saying. He loved us so much that He refused to come down from the cross. He left Himself so vulnerable to Satan and to sin and to us by dying on the cross. That's the best expression of the Bible's kind of love and God's kind of love. It's a love of the will. It's a love which chooses to give. It's more interested in giving than it is in receiving. This love is a part of your life if you're born of God. And you might say, what in the world does that mean? Well, what it means is if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have become a partaker of the divine nature. And the most fundamental thing that can be said about the divine nature is that it's love. So you have had the love of God shed abroad in your heart by God's Spirit. That's why the Apostle Paul could say to the church at Thessalonica, you don't have to have some man to teach you how to love. God has taught you how to love. And if you know Jesus, you no longer are with excuse for not loving, nor am I. Because we have God in our lives. We can love with this kind of love, this kind of unconditional love. He who has been loved with this love views other people as God views them, worth loving, even though they may be worthless in the world's eyes. Now, let me say another thing about love. Love is not a gift. Paul does not insert this discourse on love to single it out as one of the gifts that is the greatest gift. No, love is not a gift. Love is a grace. More particularly, love is an expression of the fruit of the Spirit. It's the production of the life of Christ in us. It's Christ's character which comes shining through our lives when we are governed by Jesus. When Jesus is our Lord. Last week we talked about being filled with the Spirit and how being filled with the Spirit is the same thing as having Jesus as our Lord. And when we're filled with the Spirit, He governs our lives and love reaches out through us. This kind of self-giving rather than self-glorifying love to touch other people. It's marvelous what God does through a human being when that person is yielded and the fruit of the Spirit is produced in that person's life. Has it bothered you from time to time as you've read through the New Testament that you're commanded to love The times that it has bothered me have been those times when I didn't love. There have been plenty of those times in my Christian experience. But the Bible says, in fact, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Loving our brothers and sisters in Christ is not an option. It's a mandate. We have to do it. It's an obligation we have in our lives. Listen to some of the other things or ways in which the Bible tells us to love. In the book of 
1 Corinthians 14, we are to pursue love. In 2 Corinthians, we are to love in sincerity. In the book of Philippians, we are told that our love is to increase and abound. And then later on in that book, that we are to be unified in love. In 1 Peter 4, we are told that we are to be fervent in love. We are to be red hot in our love for one another and for the Lord. In the book of Hebrews, we are told that we are to stimulate one another to love. Part of our coming here this morning is designed, whether you know it or not, to help us to love each other more, to stimulate one another to love. Have you done that today? It's not too late to do that. Love is basic to meaningful living. That's really what this passage of Scripture is all about. And why is it basic to meaningful living? I find three reasons in this passage of Scripture why that is so. First of all, without love, we turn people off. Without love, we are offensive in our relationships. I believe verse 1 of our passage of Scripture teaches this truth. Let's look at it again together. (coughs) Excuse me. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, the background of what the apostle is saying here, I believe, is if I speak with eloquence, be it in intelligible language or unintelligible language, both of which are given by God, if I speak with either of these kinds of languages and don't have love, I'm offensive. I'm a turnoff. Now, how do I get that from this passage of Scripture? Let's consider these two instruments which are mentioned in verse 1. The gong. Have you ever seen the gong show? I don't know if it's still on TV, but it was very popular maybe a decade ago. Did you see it? That's a gong. I don't need to say anything more about that. But the symbol perhaps needs a bit more explanation because there were two types of symbols available in Corinth. There was the large symbol, which is similar to our symbol, When you clang them together, they would make a loud, harsh noise. And then there was another kind of symbol which would be placed on the thumb and the middle finger and would be clicked together, much like castanets are clicked together. You've seen castanets. So I'm told symbols are single-toned instruments and they're incapable of carrying a melody. And if that's all we hear... It can be very noisy, cacophonous, as the musicians say, very irritating to the ear. It just sort of turns you off. It's worse than a a bunch of baying dogs. It just drives you wild. Now, what is the apostle saying here? He's saying, if you and I speak in intelligible or unintelligible languages, perhaps out of our own spiritual giftedness, if we don't do that in love, then we are a turnoff to people. Eloquence without love is offensive. It's offensive because it's manipulative. Have you ever had people manipulate you with the way they spoke to you? Speech is useful to manipulate people by putting them down. Do you put people down with your language? Speech is useful to manipulate people by intimidating them. I was watching Iowa and Indiana play basketball yesterday. And the commentators were discussing how Bobby Knight, the coach of Indiana, has a way of 
sizing people up when he first meets them by intimidating them with his speech. And then if they do not respond in an offensive way, if they become defensive, then he just has nothing to do with them. My friends, that is an example of what love is not when it comes to speech. Then we manipulate people through our speech and eloquence by being deceitful sometimes. How many people have been deceived by eloquent speech? But before we go further, let me say this. As Judy has sung, love is a universal language. For the past two summers, a group of us have gone to Paris, Mexico for a week of ministry. And on each occasion, we have taken a delegation from Oklahoma with us. There's a young lady who's gone with us each year, and her name is Melinda. Melinda is... uh, very outgoing young lady, blonde haired. And let me tell you what happened the first time we went to the barrio where we shared Jesus with a group of people who are so poor that they wouldn't even begin to approximate the poor people in our country. The children flocked around her. No sooner had she arrived than she was mobbed by the children who were there. Melissa hardly could say gracias. And to this day, she still hasn't spent a lot of... Melinda, I think is her name, has not spent a lot of time learning the language of those people. But she communicates love to those people. And they know it because love is the same in any language. It's a turn on rather than a turn off when you really love somebody. Have you met people like that? Missionaries can take nothing more valuable to their posts in foreign countries than the language of love. We have a missionary from our church, Paul Weaver, who is spending two years seeking to learn Arabic, one of the most difficult languages in the world. But if I know Paul, I know that today he is communicating with people who do not speak English or Arabic in Jordan because he has the love of Jesus Christ in his life. And people are being turned on to God and to meaningful living through him. And so it should be through you and me. A life without love is a turnoff. Would you agree? It's offensive. That's one reason why it's basic to meaningful living. Another reason why love is basic to meaningful living is because without love, we remain insignificant. Let's look at verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy, why don't I just stop right there? This gift is the gift of revealing from God, the truths which would remain hidden, the mysteries about which Paul talks in just a moment. It's that tremendous capacity to receive a message from the Lord and to communicate it. It's the Word of God to people. That was a tremendous gift. In fact, if you look at verse 28 of chapter 12, let's read that. And in the church God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets. It was the second most important spiritual gift. The apostle says, if I have that gift and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, let me pause a moment on knowledge. Knowledge is the intellectual grasp of this truth that has been revealed through prophets. It's the gift of the teacher. And you'll notice in verse 28 again that the next most important gift to the church of Jesus Christ after prophecy is the gift of teaching. So if I have the most important gift or the second most important gift being prophecy, and if I have the third most important gift being teaching... Looks like Paul's on a roll here. 
And if I have a faith that can move mountains, isn't that tremendous? The kind of faith that can say to this mountain, get up from you and be cast into the sea. That reminds us of what Jesus said in Matthew 17, 20, when he was talking about if we have the faith of a mustard seed, we can exercise it in this fashion. Paul says, if I've got the most important gift, and interestingly enough, that's the next gift in the list that Paul gives in verse 28, the worker of miracles. He said, if I've got all these, but I have not love, I am something. It's not what he says. He says, I am nothing. He does not say, I'm a nobody. He could have used a word which would be translated nobody. He said, I am nothing. What he's saying here is, I am a zero. I mean, I can preach with power, and I can do great miracles, and I can exercise all my gifts, but I am a zero if I don't have love. Are you beginning to get a glimpse of how important love is? How basic it is to meaningful living? Now, how do we measure people's worth? Probably the same way the Corinthians did. In the church... We look at the movers and the shakers, and we want to pattern our lives after the movers and the shakers. The question is, why do we do that? Why do we want to emulate those people who are evidently so great and so successful in the church? It's the same reason that we idolize people like Lee Iacocca and Donald Trump. It's because those people get the limelight, and they're the great performers in life. And the way we measure from a godless, I repeat, a godless point of view... We measure people's worth by what they do and how they act and how well they perform. That's how we determine if a person is a person of worth. Does God evaluate us in this way? Not at all. He does not do it. Now you think about when you meet someone and you're trying to get to know that person, sooner or later, you get around to asking them a question or him or her a question like this. What do you do? Have you ever asked someone that question? And then they tell you what they do. And sometimes you say, where did you go to college? Sometimes that can be a real put-down. I went to a school that was considered... Well, let me just tell you the nickname of it. It's Memphis State, the school. That's not the nickname. It was called Tiger High. It's kind of like going to UTA. <laughs> it was a commuter school. And I'd have people ask me, where do you go to school? Well, uh, I want to know state. It's like one of my fraternity brothers said on the way back from a Memphis State football game. He was inebriated and he was a red shirt football player. And he said, my body is big, my brain is small. I came to Memphis State to play football. That's kind of the way people looked at Memphis State. Wouldn't it be revolutionary the next time someone asks you or me what we do, we could say with all integrity, I love? That's what I do. I love. Isn't that the more excellent way? Wouldn't it be great if we could say that? Wouldn't it be neat if that would be true of this church? If this church would be known for its love, next week we're going to see what characterizes that kind of love more fully. Having love makes me important. 
That's what this passage of Scripture teaches. God loves us unconditionally. Not necessarily does He love us and approve of our habits and our character traits. He loves us for who we are. And realizing that I am loved is the basis of my being able to love other people. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. That's how we're going to really love other people, because we recognize that we're loved. I think the fact that God loves us is seen in our uniqueness. God loves what He makes, just like you and I love what we make. If you make a dress, you love that dress. If you write a poem, you love that poem. God made you and He made me. And more than that, if we know Jesus, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. And that means that we are His pieces of artwork. God loves us. Who are we to despise what God loves? It's a sin to despise yourself. I hope you know that. It's a sin for me to reject myself. It is a sin because God has not rejected us. He has accepted us in the Beloved. It's hard to accept the fact that God loves us because the love from human beings that we experience has generally been based on good behavior, hasn't it? If I act right, then my mother loves me. If my wife acts right, then I love her and approve her. We learn early in our lives in our relationships with our peers that if we share our things and we smile and we're nice and we don't get too close to those people, violate their space too much, then what happens? Then we're okay. We're loved. My friends, this is so atypical of God's love. God loves you for who you are, not for what you do or can do or don't do. God loves you, and He loves me for who we are. We don't have to live to please Him to be the recipients of His love. Now, God gets mad at us sometimes, just like parents get mad at kids. How many of you parents have ever gotten mad at your kids? Anybody here? About three times this morning already. (laughs) But I love my children even when I get angry. The beautiful thing about God, He gets mad. I mean, it's written all over the Bible. He gets angry with His children, but He never is disinterested in them. The danger would come as a parent or as our heavenly parent if He became disinterested in us and ignored us, but He's always been vitally interested in His people, hasn't He? And he'll always be vitally interested in you and me if we know Jesus. Now let me look very quickly at the last reason why love is basic to meaningful existence. Number one, because without it we turn people off. Number two, without it we are insignificant. Number three, without it we live in vain. Our lives don't count for anything without it. If I give all I possess to the poor... Let me just pause here and talk to you a moment about what Paul was saying. He used a word which is used to describe parceling out small amounts of food, and it was used to describe the feeding of an infant. You can't feed an infant with a handful of food, can't you? You have to be very careful and delicate in the way you feed an infant. What Paul is picturing here is a person who takes his estate and he gives it out in one fell swoop, in one grand gesture of Benevolence. He gives everything he has to feed the poor. Now, that's terrific, isn't it? Tremendous, the thought. Why do you give? Let me ask you that question. Do you give to get the plaudits of other people so people will see you give? 
Do you give to salve a bad conscience? How many people who have exploited others to make money have turned around in their twilight years and established foundations to feed the poor, philanthropic organizations to take care of the needy, to try to salve their consciences? This is no way to get right with God. The only way to get right with God is by giving your life to Jesus Christ and experiencing His love. That's the only way we can ever experience God's love in its fullest intention is to give our lives to Christ. Now, let's see what else he says. And surrender my body to the flames. It's generally agreed that the greatest expression of love is martyrdom, giving oneself. But Paul is saying here, even that is not enough if you don't have love because if you don't have love and you do all these things, you gain nothing. We need to ask our questions. Why do I give ourselves this question? Why do I give to the poor? What prompts me to burn out for God? Have you ever heard anyone say, I'd rather rust out for God than burn out for God? Have you ever heard anyone say that? The question comes to mind, for whom are people saying those kinds of things? For others to hear, so others can step back in awe of the great commitment of those people. We need to evaluate why we do. Our life's ultimate value, I want you to hear this, our life's ultimate value in terms of contribution will depend on our motives. What motivates me to give to the poor? What motivates me to give my life in sacrificial service? Now, certainly it is true, as I mentioned earlier, that love from God's point of view is the sacrifice of self in the service of unworthy others. That's right. But it is possible to be self-sacrificing without loving. Not all self-sacrifice is love because some self-sacrifice is designed to bring glory to the one who's making the sacrifice. It's to draw attention to the individual. It's what Raymond B. Brown said when he said, self-giving is self-seeking if the motive is self-praise. If our goal is to get glory by our service, then our life is going to amount to nothing. If you've been serving God in whatever capacity to get people to notice you, then when the judgment day comes, your life is going to disintegrate. There's going to be nothing but a heap of ashes left. You'll go into eternity without the reward that God would have had for you if you had gone about your business in secret, doing it unto the Lord rather than unto men. Now, let me close by summarizing this way. First of all, I need to say this. The gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy and the gift of the word of knowledge and the gift of teaching and the gift of miracles and the gift of giving And all the other gifts are terrific. I mean, they're from God. They have to be good, don't they, if He gave them to us. But God stresses to us the importance of letting love serve as the basis of the exercising of these gifts because unless love serves as that basis, we will misuse those gifts every time. Every time we will misuse those gifts. Think with me one more moment about what's important to you. Now, if you're honest, you would agree with what I'm about to say. Is it important for you to belong? 
It is, isn't it? It is important for you to belong. With love, you're a turn on, not a turn off. So you'll belong. I mean, you'll get rejected by some people who don't respond properly to love, but you'll have so many people to relate to because we've got a whole world of people who need loving. Secondly, may I ask you this question? Do you have a desire to be somebody? I think that's the most basic desire in the human heart, to be significant, to be somebody. With love, you are somebody. If you have Jesus, you're somebody, and you have a way to express that love to other people. And finally, let me ask you this question. Do you want your your life to count? Do you want your life to matter? I do. With love, it will matter. I thank God that He inspired Paul to show us this more excellent road, more excellent way to meaningful living. Let's pray. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. I don't know how many of you this past week read about the apparently untimely death of Andy Gibb. Andy Gibb was the youngest of the Bee Gees, and Andy Gibb had had a problem with cocaine earlier in his 20s, but it apparently had been licked. And he was rushed to the hospital, I believe, somewhere in England, perhaps in London, and he was complaining of stomach cramps, and he died. And it was determined that he had a very rare virus which had attacked his heart. As I thought about that, I thought about, here was a young man who had the world by the tail, it seemed, but a man whose life was required of him just like that. And it served as a reminder to me, as it should to you, and perhaps it already has, that we do not have the guarantee of a tomorrow. And many of us live our lives like this rich fool about whom Jesus taught. We live our lives as if we've got forever to live instead of right now. And I think it's important that we live our lives for Jesus now. And someone has come here tonight without Jesus Christ, and you think perhaps you are living on a very wide margin of time in your life, but you don't know that, just like I don't know that. And I encourage you to consider giving your life to Christ tonight before you meet what would be considered an untimely death. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We pray that the death of Andy Gibb would be an occasion for all of us to evaluate the shortness of our lives. Lord, we pray for this man's family. We pray for his brothers who are caught up in the world system, it appears. And we pray, God, that they would come to know Jesus as a result of their brother's passing and that others would also come to know him as a result of Andy's passing. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.